Okay, welcome to brief, well, Bell's brief chat. Um, before we we'll, uh, begin, a, a quick word about Bell's. Uh, it stands for British Educated Life Scientists, of which there are many across the globe working to advance life-saving innovations throughout the health and life sciences globally. Today, very fortunate to be speaking with David Pyatt, the former long-serving CEO of Allergan, the US specialty pharma company most famous for its Botox, cosmetics, and therapeutics indications, as well as ophthalmic uh, products. David led Allergan from 1998 to 2015, when it was acquired by Actavis, and is currently remaining very busy with a portfolio of board and philanthropy roles, which we will get into a little later. So, David, like me, you were a so-called coronation baby, uh, having a Father in the sugar industry meant uh, some moving around for you, uh, notably leading to a few childhood years I know spent in India. Uh, do you think that shaped you for an interna international life to come? Yeah, I think absolutely, because uh, I grew up in a very rural place, about uh, 250 miles um, northeast of uh, what today is called Mumbai. Uh, people here might have heard of Pune, probably you know, it's a burgeoning place now. Mm -hmm. And I think, you know, being basically the only Caucasian uh, juvenile, you know, or young child for, I think, over 30 miles makes you feel very different. And I think it uh, gives you very good sort of uh, cultural radar of what on earth is going on around you. Um, it also led to language, I think, because uh, I was a fluent Marathi speaker, which is the language of Maharashtra or the province where Mumbai is the capital and uh, certainly you know very very open view of the world and uh, when we talk later as much as I loved growing up in Scotland where I went to school you know Glasgow Academy great school uh, by the time I was 16 I, I must admit I found Scotland just too small you know I needed mm -hmm. to get out and explore again and yeah uh, you went to chose Edinburgh University to attend, of course, a world-class university in its own right. Yeah, that was an interesting one. Uh, my father was actually a great Anglophile, and uh, I, in fact, had a offer of a scholarship to study at the University of Oxford. And, uh, you know, I'm not sure I'm proud of it now, but uh, the little bit of my Scottish rebel came out, and uh, I'm afraid I just said, I don't want to go to an English university. Um, <laughs> we have quite good ones you know, in our own backyard, as Americans say. And, you know, it, for me, it worked. Um, it was a kind of place that um, was very international uh, at the time. The student body, 10% were from overseas. And that kind of led to other things for me. So, you know, life's journey, um, there's lots of twists and turns. And uh, sometimes you have to make decisions. Yeah. And then it was a, a law diploma from the University of Amsterdam, MBA from London Business School. And do you see this as all part of you exploring sort of which as aspect of business you'd like to pursue? Well, actually, um, from really um, what Americans would call high school, you know, from then onwards, I ended up working in a whole series of banks. So, in fact, I worked in Frankfurt before I went to Edinburgh University. Ironically, I had to get myself a work permit because it was before this thing called the common market had happened for the UK. 
And then ironically, uh, later on, I was studying Article 50, the exit clause at the University of Amsterdam, thinking why on earth would one study this? Uh, you know, that came useful later on. But really, <clears throat> you know, I ended up working for a German bank, an Austrian bank, an American bank, and then I worked in the city. And then finally, it sort of entered my dense cranium that I really didn't like banking very much and I needed to do something different. And that's why I went to London Business School. And mm -hmm. as it's typical for many people who, you know, kind of change their profile, uh, it gives you a great catapult to do the next thing. And uh, that's when I ended up going straight from London to Switzerland to work for what then was Sandoz. Yep. So joined Sandoz uh, Nutrition in 1980. Uh, looks like you held an, quite a number of jobs within Sandoz um, and latterly as a, a general manager in uh, Barcelona before you took the reins as president and CEO in 1992. Uh, did you move around Europe in these roles, um, presumably, or were you mostly based in Basel at that time? Yeah, no, actually, it was an extremely uh, international career. And, uh, you know, classically, I started as uh, kind of the assistant uh, also known as the head of strategic planning of uh, the division head of Sandoz Nutrition. And of course, that's a great place to really learn the business, you know, up, down and around. And then I ended up actually being posted in, <clears throat> in Malaysia, Austria, Spain, then the United States. And then I got yanked back from the US to run the division, uh, as you stated. And when I look back through all of that, I think the most formative moment um, was actually when I was made general manager of Austria, when I was, uh, I think I wasn't even 34 years old. So it was like my own little patrol boat, you know, it's a pretty small country. But, um, you know, if you behave and don't lose a lot mm -hmm. of money, you tend to get left alone. And, you know, that was then kind of the long ladder upwards, you know, where naively at the beginning, I thought I was going to stay in Austria for 10 years. And then, you know, by year four, I was already moved to Spain. I had to learn Spanish in a hurry. I think I was given three months to solve my problem. <laughs> and, uh, you know, I called that my Latino phase. And, and then, um, you know, came over here. And uh, of course, this is a wonderful, huge market. Um, and if you do well, um, you probably, you know, are destined for even higher um, duties, which in the case for myself, I ended up running uh, the whole business worldwide and kind of in a fun way, the same job that um, my boss had had, you know, 14 years earlier, uh, although the company had changed and grown uh, since I yep. started in that division. Well, as a, as a linguist myself at university, I have to admire the facility with which you obviously picked up languages right, right throughout your life. Um, then one of the large pharma mergers uh, took place between Sibagaygi and Sandoz, to form Novartis, um, where you then headed the nutrition division until the end of 1997. Um, were you starting to ponder a life beyond Novartis um, at the time? Yeah, you know, I think um, by the time you kind of reach the top of the tree that you're on, um, you naturally kind of ask yourself, and I was still, you know, just over 40 years old. And I think the second major, you know, catalyst was the realization that within a much larger life sciences business, especially a pharmaceutical business, 
I didn't think the nutrition division really had a good fit. Now that doesn't always apply. You know, you could look at um, today's Abbott with Ross Labs. Uh, that's their nutrition division. You know, highly successful, definitely part of the portfolio. But uh, I really realised, uh, you know, this was a not a good fit. And uh, I was right because after I moved on to Allergan, um, <clears throat> most of the business was sold to Nestle. Obviously, another Swiss nutrition company, mm-hmm. literally down the road. And, and part of it actually to Associated British Foods. Uh, that was the Ovaltine franchise. And yeah. uh, for, the, for the Brits on the phone, when I joined uh, um, Sandoz, I was absolutely convinced that Ovaltine was a British brand. Whereas actually the horrible truth is it's a Swiss brand. And uh, <laughs> if any of you go skiing in Switzerland, you will see the Ovaltine, as it's called over there, brand on the ski slopes. It's kind of one of the Swiss hallmarks of uh, their culture. But that's yeah. a, you know, a story of adaptation to uh, local conditions, successfully, I would note. So your mention of Allegan there, I mean, so you joined, um, as interestingly, it was described as a relatively small eye care business yeah. uh, in 1998, but I would still consider it quite a large company then. But you grew the company's valuation from or value from two billion to about seventy billion over the next seventeen years, and and importantly, you transformed it into a pharmaceutical and a medical device giant. Um, when you started that journey with Allegan, which took you obviously to the West Coast in California, um, did you start with a view to building a company extended and beyond? Yeah, I mean, when I looked at Allergan from the outside, I was pretty fascinated by it because um, it had just passed its year 50. So, you know, this is a company that had been around a long time in California. Only um, two chief executives before me. Um, So I thought, wow, you know, if I get this job, I'm number three in sort of year 51. It's quite remarkable. And uh, when I looked at the business, Mm -hmm. It was global. Um, it had leading market shares, but rather um, I'd call it tepid performance. And initially I was kind of scratching my head trying to work out, you know, what was wrong with it. So happily I got the job and uh, the sales basically just by focusing effort on two or three brands, one of which was Botox and two which were eye care, really produced results. And so six months in with the senior management team, they began to learn about my Scottish humor. And I said, you know, I'm not very good at finding problems. In fact, I don't think there are any. And, uh, you know, that's when the sales were, call it, you know, we just about spun off our device business. So the baseline was 600 million. And as you said, you know, 16 years later, 17, counting all of it together, you know, the sales were 7 billion and almost all organic, interestingly enough. So it was a wonderful journey. Yeah. And then um, legendary um, um, pursuit of, of Allegan by Bill Ackman and uh, the Canadian company Valiant. Um, uh, this seemed to be, from the outside, basically a fundamental battle for either a cost-cutting strategy or an R&D-focused growth strategy. Yeah, I mean, it was a pretty horrible experience. Um, it turned into a battle mm. royale 
from April of that year until December, when we accepted the offer from what was then called uh, activists, as it's pronounced over here. Um, my joke there was I finally found an activist yep. I really liked. But, you know, going back to the antecedents, it was the only <laughs> time ever that a strategic had teamed up with a activist hedge fund to basically go down and take out a company. Yep. And it was just absolutely an asset stripping operation. Um, their plans, all of which were published, was first of all an inversion uh, into Ireland. And basically the first bid they put on us, which was you know, a premium of about 9 billion, was completely paid for by US tax savings, uh, which was really horribly ironic. Um, you know, the, the consumer, mm -hmm. the, the taxpayer in the United States was paying for the, the offer. And uh, then, you know, we, uh, they also very publicly stated they were going to take the R&D budget down from about 1.2 billion a year to 200 million. Now, of course, anybody can work out that has a huge accelerating effect on earnings per share, right? Now, you could then ask yourself what happens five years later or 10 years later when you, know, you have nothing in your pipeline. But at the time, um, there was a fashion going on and people on Wall Street thought that was an okay proposition as they'd watched Valiant roll up acquisition after acquisition and so on. So happily, um, we had a very tough board, really great people, great senior management team, and we decided to fight it out. And again, for the Brits in the audience, um, I'm sure you uh, love the name for this survival operation was called Endurance. You know, after HMS Endurance and Shackleton, you know, which didn't all turn out perfectly for mm -hmm. uh, life at the South Pole. But um, we created so much value by basically sticking to our guns, focusing. We actually had the best operating year in the whole history of the company. We grew the top line over 1.2 billion that year. So ironically, the number yep. that I'd inherited, you know, when I'd started, you know, 16 years earlier. And, and that's how, in a way, we did the magic, you know, that we could say um, when the music started, the company was worth uh, 37 billion. Uh, the day we announced the deal with activists, it was worth 66 billion. And then we kind of got lucky that the markets were very favorable, especially for pharma and biotech. Yep. And, and the day that the, the ticker got changed, it was 71 billion. So uh, as some of the bankers pointed out to me, not exactly the plan, but um, one person said to me, you know, I'm just a banker. Um, you know, on a per diem basis, uh, the Allergan team did a pretty good job. And so, you know, I'll take that one for the team, you know. Yeah. And was there any temptation to stay on or did you just decide, you know, that this is the right time to get out? Um, well, obviously, in all of this, um, my whole objective was to get the very best price I could for the right. shareholders. And I'd always said that, that if we were going to ever go, we'd go out in a sheet of uh, glory or fire or something. Mm -hmm. um, because at the end of the day, we work for our shareholders, right? As a public company. Yep. And I remember even in the last month, I managed to uh, bid up uh, Brent Saunders, who then turned out to be my successor. 
you know, to the tune of about five billion. So uh, I suppose some people call this Scottish poker playing, but uh, you know, that's okay. Uh, you know, you got to do what mm -hmm. you got to do. And, you know, there was some discussion whether I'd stay on the board, but uh, looking back, I'm really pleased, you know, that my, I'd done my job. Um, a lot of people at the senior level, which is normal in our industry, you know, move on. Uh, a lot of people at the second level are given good incentives, you know, the so-called stay bonus packages, and they stayed. And the company did quite well. And uh, for me, then it's, uh, say, job done, yeah. 17 years. It was a great run. And go and do something new. Yeah. And as, as I mentioned earlier, you, you're now focused on a portfolio career of corporate board positions and philanthropic activities. Um, and focusing first on the corporate side of things, it seems uh, quite interesting if you evaluate the companies you're on the boards of. You've opted for two that are very large company boards in Avery Dennison and Phillips, and then two large biotechs that perhaps are looking to scale their operations in Almilam and, and Biomarin, and then two smaller biotechs in Bionis Therapeutics and Pliant, uh, both in California. Is that a, a conscious mix of companies or just circumstance? Well, always, you know, I, I'm a sort of believer in you know, opportunity comes smiling and you just have to have your eyes open to see the opportunity. Yep. Uh, so I think that's what's always fun, you know, about working in general, but particularly, you know, having the privilege of working in the life sciences industry. And uh, yeah, I kind of smile to say, you know, the little private company in Irvine, California, where I'm the chairman, I think we're now at 10 employees. And on the other side of the divide, we have Phillips at 80,000. Now, obviously, the roles are completely okay. different, but I think that's kind of yep. uh, the interesting part that uh, you can add value, you can contribute in a very, very different way to, you know, helping the CEO of Philips and the rest of the board colleagues with insights or suggestions. And then, you know, very much more hands-on when you're down to 10 people or the most recent board I've joined is in South San Francisco, um, company focused on fibrosis called Pliant. And uh, they're, you know, not even yep. at 100 employees, but, uh, you know, with a great trajectory in, in front of them. So I find all of this uh, very fascinating. And uh, I love to continue learning, as well as hopefully making good contributions to whatever organization I'm involved in at that very moment. Yeah, and I assume then that probably the same deal with the philanthropic side. I mean, a clear focus on the Ophria, uh, which is focused on improving patient outcomes. And obviously, from your time at Allegan, that's totally understandable. Uh, but also at your alma maters in the UK with the University of Edinburgh with an honorary uh, doctorate and um, London Business School. Uh, again, I, I presume a thoughtful planned portfolio choice by you. Yeah, exactly. Well, um, if I go to the eye care world, um, I was involved in many of the not-for-profit organizations when I was still CEO. So, you know, I used to joke I was still on the dark side, uh, although I think my physician colleagues thought that I had a pretty, you know, both black and white shirt on. And, and so now it's a completely white shirt because I'm not involved in any ophthalmic industrial activity at all. But all of these charities pretty much have the same goal, 
and that is how do we educate ophthalmologists in the emerging markets and India, you know, has made such great strides on its own, most of Asia, but more and more of my effort is to Africa, where there are just so few ophthalmologists, full stop. Uh, the other sort of one I really enjoy is yep. uh, supporting the Prince's Trust. Um, this is obviously Prince Charles's charity, fabulous organization since the beginning, has created over 1 million jobs for young people in the UK. And... Uh, there, you know, it's all about giving back um, and creating jobs for young people in the West of Scotland and uh, particularly trying to get them into the National Health Service. And then the final one uh, you mentioned is London Business School, where, you know, very important in my life, where it kind of gave me the, the springboard to being uh, no longer a banker, but then what ended up being in the pharmaceutical industry. And, you know, it's one of the top five business schools in the world. But our resources compared to a Harvard are very, very small. So I always explain to people, I love Fulcrum, you know, where you could say, you know, donate a million pounds and you can make a giant difference. Whereas uh, with all due respect to our colleagues in Boston, um, if you gave a million dollars to Harvard, they would say, thank you very much. Uh, but I'm not sure that much would change. So, uh, you know, I like to do what I call impact mm -hmm. investing in all manner of uh, charitable and not-for-profit uh, work. And now splitting your time between a home in Orange County and one that satisfies your love of skiing in Colorado. Yeah, sure. Yeah, we just bought a house. Uh, it turned out to be good during um, the COVID pandemic. Um, I suppose one could say, you know, jokingly, you know, I have a bit of breathing difficulties every day, but it's due to the altitude. Uh, this house is actually almost at 10,000 feet. And uh, basically I can go skiing every day, which is wonderful in between these other activities. And uh, yep. the few times it's not nice up here, then I can retreat back to California and go and sit in the sun, or hopefully very soon come back to the UK and other places I like to go to in Europe. So uh, this, I mean, at yep, some yep. point we're all gonna get vaccinated and uh, we'll have learned from the experience and hopefully the world will be a better place. Um, uh, clearly Sandoz, Novartis, Allegan will have all had uh, for significant interest in the UK, but turning to the UK, I'm sort of interested if you feel that the UK's industrial strategy uh, which is focused in a big way on the life sciences, is making it an increasingly important global venue for global companies and smaller companies alike. Yes, um, and I'll answer this <clears throat> very much in the context of what I learned um, if we, we look in contrast with Ireland. Um, in fact, uh, during the Allergan times, the largest concentration of employees outside California worldwide was in the Republic of Ireland. And, uh, and it was all about manufacturing. And uh, I take my hat off mm -hmm. to uh, the Irish government, what they've succeeded in delivering, you know, in the last, call it 30, 40 years. But of course, um, when we step back, as great as the value added chain in manufacturing is in pharmaceuticals, say relative to, I don't know, making widgets or making t-shirts or you know going to the other extreme <clears throat> you know it's still clear the next 
place on the value chain going upwards clearly is science and R&D. And I think that's where the UK appropriately has focused. Um, you know, there are exceptions um, where large companies choose the UK as a manufacturing site, but um, I'm not sure that normally is, that there always there's exceptions, right? But you know, the mainstream here is um, following science and really, um, in my view, leveraging um, a great network of public universities. And, uh, and so, you know, just like many other places in the world, you know, whether we think of, you know, the Boston area, we think of uh, Southern and Northern California for biotech or Minneapolis for uh, medical devices as examples. The UK, you know, is really coming to the fore, you know, with, I'd call it the golden triangle, you know, between London, uh, Oxford and Cambridge. And, uh, and of course, also the Thames Valley being um, the site for the headquarters of many of uh, the operations of large multinational pharmaceutical companies. And even, you know, we're not gonna get sort of lost in Brexit, but uh, I think most of these things will continue even in this next uh, industrial chapter uh, for the UK. Are there particular assets or aspects of the UK arsenal that uh, particularly grab your personal attention or, or any, for instance, any of the companies in your portfolio? Yes. Um, well, always <clears throat> universities is a great place to start. And, uh, you know, beyond, uh, you know, obviously I made a bit of a call out for Oxford and Cambridge. And, you know, recently there's been some really major also philanthropic donations made to those institutions. Uh, and also the many of the colleges, excuse me, <clears throat> in the University of London. But I would then particularly go as a differentiator to UK Biobank. Um, I think this is a fantastic uh, project. Um, it's still as successful as it is in its very early stages. I think we're in chapter one and goodness knows how many you know chapters will remain in this book. And I think the other... Um, undiscovered jewel or unrealized is the ability to conduct uh, clinical research and then clinical studies with the NHS, which of course is an absolutely giant um, health system by any um, stretch of comparison with anywhere in the world. And, and obviously then, you know, you can go down into the individual trusts. Um, and, you know, in my view, NHS Scotland is really the equivalent of a of an English trust, you know, it's a NHS in a particular organization. And, you know, when one thinks of the treasure trove of data uh, that is there in terms of genetic uh, predisposition of the patients, again, with the right safeguards in place uh, for, for privacy, um, I think this is just a wonderful place uh, where large pharmaceutical and small uh, can consider mm -hmm. uh, pursuing their uh, scientific goals. Well, David, you've um, you've had a, <laughs> an amazingly fantastic and very international journey uh, so far, and you, you clearly put roots and cemented yourself in the US. Um, but in closing, uh, perhaps I could ask you if you can offer any thoughts and/or advice um, in terms of the. Of bells as we take this forward, um, 
And and from your point of view, are we helping to maintain your connection to the old country? So so obviously, looking at the UK, I, I see it very much from the lens of an internationalist. You know, somebody who's lived in ten countries, worked in seven, and uh, I haven't worked lived in the UK really for forty years now. But uh, in the UK is one of the many countries I go back to, and. Uh, you know, and originally being British, of course, I would claim that I understand it, you know, better than most countries around the globe. And I think one of the great advantages of the UK, akin to the United States, is it's an open society. It's a multicultural society. Uh, in our industry, we can see lots of great British executives and scientists, but lots of other people who've arrived in the UK from somewhere else and, and made their mark. So I think that is the sort of the, the real uh, fundamental stone underneath it all. But of course, in our industry, mm -hmm. that is so complicated, um, and it's not just a case of adding one to two equals three plus five equals eight and so on. Um, we can really get into exponential um, algebra. And it's all about insights and therefore knowing people of exceptional quality. And that's where our industry in my view, even more than others, is all about human connections and uh, ability to start something because they know there's somebody out there with a similar interest. Or uh, that person says, you know, you should talk to somebody you don't know yet. And, you know, that can be, if you like, the flintstone that creates the spark uh, to get things going. So I think uh, your organization, this organization, Bells, really has something major to contribute. And, uh, you know, a common denominator may be that we are all, you know, whether we're British or just a foreigner, a non-Brit that was educated in the UK, that doesn't matter. But this is a, a really great forum that for almost uh, no cost is just lying at everybody's feet to be used. So I think you're doing a great job here and uh, offering everybody really a wonderful service. Uh, thank you very much uh, for sharing your journey and your thoughts. Um, uh, I think the community will find it very valuable, as will the people in the UK. Great. Thank, thank you. you. Thanks so much for the invitation. And uh, let me know what else I can do to help. Thank you. Thank you, David. Thank you.